So I'm intrigued that somebody that appreciates the brain with such acuteness um, <laughs> yeah. can be a fan of a sport where the objective is to bash this beautiful instrument that we have. You know, it's it's a uh, yeah. There's definitely some sort of contrast there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say. Uh, everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really happy that my guest this week is neuroscientist Sean Froudist-Walsh. He specializes in dopamine, and we've had many conversations about the effects of blows to the head, uh, and why these guys are as addicted to doing what they do, uh, and, and what is the science behind it? What's the science of us watching this? What is this doing to our brain? I mean, boxing fans are frequently thought of as, as addicts that we just can't, no matter how fucked up boxing is, we just can't look away. <laughs> and, you know, we're the only sport where there's this massive paywall getting to the, the best of our product. So I thought Sean would be really fun to have on and look at all of this stuff with some scientific expertise. He's a, he's a great guy and very, very thoughtful on this subject. So I hope you enjoy it. Sean Frutist Walsh, what brought you here to NYU? What is your background? Um, well, I guess I used to, or, or answering this question in a kind of academic way, mm. and, and I'm basically here for, for work. And, um, I studied math in undergrad back in Dublin, where I grew up, mm -hmm. and um, I was telling you off mic there that both of my parents are mime artists, and uh, so I ended up doing a math degree because I was looking for something a bit more stable, and then... And was, being a mime. Yeah, a little bit. Did you, you know. consider following in the family I mean, it was the natural, it was the natural <laughs> path. I did a couple of gigs as a sheep, and it didn't really... <laughs> went okay. But, um, that is so incredible. So I wanted to go a bit more stable. So I studied mathematics. And then in my final year, other people were going off to, to train to be accountants or bankers or whatever. And I was like, I don't know if that will really work for me because, mm -hmm. you know, my dad's basically a communist and he never talked to me again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want something a little bit more well, he's a mime. in between mime and banking. Yeah. You know, and we got this amazing guest lecture from a guy called Hugh Garavan. Okay. And it was just an hour. And he was a neuroscientist in Trinity at the time. And he's, he's up in Bernie Sanders country, Vermont now. Okay. And he gave us this one hour lecture on ADHD in the brain. And he showed us different brain areas lighting up and how it was different in kids with ADHD. And I was like, that's amazing. You know, that's what I want to do. So that hour I was like, okay, I'm looking into neuroscience. Huh. Decided, I managed to talk my way on to... Um, a course, a master's course in London, and uh, despite barely knowing where the brain was. And, and uh, that summer is where I met your friend Ian Robertson huh. at a party. I was being a waiter at a party, and I knew I was going into neuroscience. And I heard he was the head of neuroscience in Trinity. And when I heard that, I started giving him and his wife loads of free wine. Because oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, maybe there's a job in this for me at some stage. But... Um, 
So if you could carry some water for listeners, yeah. um, when I first heard of Ian Robertson, I assumed we were talking about Ian Stevenson, who I'd read two books of, who was the main scientist who explored reincarnation. Okay, yeah, well... <laughs> Not him. Uh, unless he's taken a radical change of attack. <laughs> um, no, Ian Robertson is a, is a very highly um, respected neuroscientist. He's an expert in cognitive neuroscience mm. um, on how various uh, types of higher cognitive functions work in the brain, but also how the brain responds to injury. Right. Um, and he worked in Cambridge for many years, and he's been in Trinity College Dublin um, for, for quite a long time now, and now he's he heading up what's called the Global Health Brain Health Institute, and he's really looking, forward, looking into how we can make people age better. Right. And, um, you know, I think maybe we'll touch on some of that later in terms of how sport and fitness might be helpful in that regard. Yeah. Maybe also how getting punched in the head too much might not be that helpful. So we um, think. But, we think. Uh, but yeah, Ian, Ian's great. He's charismatic as well. And I think he has quite a lot of stuff on YouTube. If anybody wants to, mm. to look him up, he's, he's uh, there's one great... Several great skills to being a great scientist, and it's really difficult, but it's a whole other set of skills to being a great science communicator, and I think he's one of the best. So yeah. I'd recommend if people are interested in learning a bit about the brain, definitely that would be a good place to start. And, and what turned me on to him, actually, was a previous guest, guest number three, DBC Pierre. His right. new book is called um, Dopamine City. Really? And so he's really been exploring wow. the neuroscience of this and name-dropped Ian Robertson of somebody for us to explore. So I've been doing all these transcriptions from interviewing him in Mexico City, which made me think of you <laughs> as uh, somebody I went to to talk to for uh, my chess book, The Grandmaster, who, looking at the effects of yeah. sending fi enlisting five-year-olds into spending 12 hours a day, um, becoming paranoid of every <laughs> chess player they encounter. Yeah, amazing. I just bought it in the Strand okay. bookstore, actually. So Okay. Well... Um, so, yeah, we can get to Ian Robertson. I'm really intrigued by, in particular, what he refers to as the winner effect. Uh, I have a quote. Winning increases the dopamine receptors in the brain, which makes you smarter and more bold. So, I mean, dopamine is, is something that Sean is focused on. It's a big focus of your career. But I don't want to jump ahead too much because mm. we've got you at Trinity meeting <laughs> Ian Robertson. This is an interesting jump where he goes from here. Yeah, so then I ended up going to, to London and I started doing research in human anatomy and how it affects um, social and behavior and cognition. And then I went over to Spain for a year and worked with some great people over there looking at mainly stroke and how that affects language and motor uh, movement and how we can recover from that type of brain damage. Um, and eventually went back to London, did a PhD, and I was looking at how very early brain damage in mostly people who are born very, very prematurely, very yeah. small, a lot of them will, or a certain percentage of them will unfortunately have a brain injury. That means that um, in some cases it's like a, a mini stroke and uh, that will go on and potentially affect their lives. And what we were looking at was how a brain that that's young, that's that young and has this early damage, how it can adapt, how they can maybe overcome some of the damage from that brain injury, but also if it gives them a bigger risk for um, certain types of mental illness maybe mm -hmm. or certain difficulties in school or social problems. 
Can I, can I, sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm, you touched on something that reminded me of Roald Dahl, uh-huh. the children's author, right. I have read was instrumental in recovering, recovering from stroke because his wife, uh, the Oscar winner, I forget, I forget her name at this moment, Patricia, I'm forgetting her last name. But she suffered a stroke fairly young, I think right. in her late 30s, and was virtually aphasic. Aphasic? Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, aphasic. Yeah. Aphasic, sorry. Yeah. Um, and Roald Dahl was told by the hospital that we can give her therapy two times a week. And he went, that's just not sufficient. Yeah. It needs far more extensively. I'm going to bring in all my friends. We're going to do five, six hours a day. Mm. And in the beginning, all of the malapropisms that she was saying about... I want a cigarette, and it would come out this gibberish kind of thing. Yeah. He wrote them all down, right? And the big friendly giant steals from his wife, regaining speech. Wow, that's where he transplanted it to. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I think that's. Um, I think that has, you know, some sense behind it. When I was over in, in Malaga, in the south of Spain. I got to work with this guy called Marcelo Berthier, mm-hmm. and he's an Argentinian neurologist there. And he had a lot of really interesting patients. Um, you know, they are unfortunately suffering from from some pretty serious stuff. Sure. But in terms of us who are interested in how the brain works, some of it was amazing. Um, for example, he had one patient with echinotopsia, which is this incredibly rare disorder where people are basically unable to see movement. Yeah. And they experience the world as a series, essentially, of still images. Good God. Um, I've never heard of this. Yeah. He also saw two of the four patients in Spain at the time with foreign accent syndrome, okay. which is where people have often like a mini stroke or some sort of um, uh, small damage to the brain. And they wake up and all of their friends and family think they're speaking in a foreign accent. Huh. Uh, in Spain, it would often be a French accent or an Argentinian accent or so on. And so he had these amazing array of patients, but he was also um, really pushing ways to treat people with aphasia hmm. in terms of how to recover language following a stroke, mainly. Yeah. And um, uh, he was trying to, and he still is, um, trying to understand if there are certain... Uh, medications that work on maybe the dopamine system or other chemical systems such as acetylcholine that can help uh, augment and improve the types of therapies that might have been trying with his his wife Um, and one of the therapies they use is called constraint induced aphasia therapy Uh which sounds a little bit along the lines of what you're talking about and this is based on actually a, a therapy for stroke patients that have lost movement in one of their arms yeah and the idea of the therapy is that basically naturally if one of your arms isn't working that well you'll use the other one mm-hmm. a lot and this is basically you just kind of tie that arm and you force yourself to try mm. and use the weaker arm and that in theory can induce plasticity or, or changing of connections in your brain wow. that will hopefully be able to make you recover quickly and um uh one of Marcelo's collaborators, uh, Friedemann Pulvermutter, I believe was the one, uh, or one of the people involved in adapting that idea to aphasia mm. and um, basically getting patients with aphasia to play little games in groups and, and um, basically giving them points if they're able to describe the things with their words rather than 
just pointing or using fast so so um huh. yeah it is it's a really interesting uh tool um to understanding the brain and also has hopefully the advantage that we'll we'll hopefully get better at treating these people and, and getting their lives back on track as well because yeah. my understanding with doll was that the doctors told him you don't want to stress her too much mm. with the therapy and he just went counterintuitive that to the full well yeah in the short term in particular I mean, I think there is, you know, a lot of things in biology are a bit goldilocksy. You know, like yeah. too much or too little is 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 bad, huh. right? So, you want people to be motivated. You want patients to be enjoying themselves. And I, I just want to say, now I'm not a medical doctor, right. but I've done research on this and I've collaborated with fantastic medical doctors, and, mm. and so I don't want to be giving people advice on sure, what sure, you sure. do right but um but i have worked on, on this to some degree and you want people to be motivated and enjoying it and if you if they are motivated hopefully they'll go back and they'll do more and they'll have more practice effects if you are too stressed for a start stress overstressing can have negative effects on the brain on mm. plasticity and so on but also you, they might be less motivated to continue going back to their treatment right day in day out so you want to find that sweet spot um and i think that's the same not just with recovering from brain injury but also with a lot of things you know in terms of that need practice right it could be boxing it could be doing my neuroscience research it could be trying to record a great podcast <laughs> well no i want to get i mean that's the thing that that i became so interested in with with this other guy robert sapolsky right. is this idea of human what separates humans from every other species and i know i'm going astray here a little bit is that the dopamine levels become elevated for such a sustained level only in us where even the concept of martyrdom is something that we're willing to go 40 years working towards something and we're getting a payoff from it thinking about what the reward is whereas a monkey is not going to wait too long to get the reward for doing work in the same way or maybe am i talking completely out of my ass here so i would say that you know science is an ever moving process and mm -hmm. we're understanding things, these things more and more as we go and not every aspect of motivation decision making is going to be uh, resting on dopamine there's lots sure, of sure, stuff sure. going on in there certainly uh, in certain situations humans seem capable of making choices that seem to give less immediate reward but maybe give a bigger payoff in the long run right certainly animals do that to some degree as well um i think probably yeah it's probably quite likely that uh, humans are better or at least some humans are better at doing that some of the time but it's not just the dopamine system that's changed there's also changes to other aspects of our brain like the prefrontal cortex that have right. developed um from uh, you know through evolution and they're quite different now between the main species that are studied in neuroscience like uh, mice rats the monkeys and humans right um and there is a book if you're interested in this kind of question by um betsy murray uh murray wise and graham and i'd say about a couple of years ago mm -hmm. and they talk about the evolution of memory systems but really they're talking about the evolution of a whole load of cognitive capacities in the brain and and they suggest that the development of 
certain parts of the cortex, like the orbitofrontal cortex, and um, which is at the kind of front of the bottom of the brain, yeah. and the anterior insula, which is kind of tucked in in the side of the brain. These are, have really helped us in order to make these uh, decisions that require you to um, maybe delay the immediate reward right. and kind of think in the future. So the dopamine system is likely to be part of it, but I think that uh, there's a lot of work left to be done to understand exactly how the dopamine system differs across species. Yeah. Um, and there's certainly a lot of other changes that might be pretty important too. Well, and I want to get into that in terms of with boxing, getting hit in the head when... Yeah that area you're discussing, in my understanding was it's not fully developed until we're about 25. Yeah, yeah. But wait, I still haven't finished your, your story of <laughs> you're still in Spain, because we haven't so even I'm got to Spain. where dopamine is the hook that, that grabs you as a central focus. So please finish. I'm sorry, I'll stop interrupting. Well, I guess I, that was kind of my first um, interaction with dopamine, because Marcelo was thinking about this as a way to maybe promote the plasticity or the the um, the uh, changes of the connections of these straight these patients with that had suffered stroke, right. and then this opportunity doing a PhD in London came up, and dopamine's involved in a lot of different things. So uh, patients with schizophrenia um, have greater release of dopamine in an area called the striatum, and uh, there's theories that that may be related to. Um, their hallucinations, some of their kind of positive psychotic symptoms, um, and also it might lead to them making uh, different or learning in a different way from reward. But they also have maybe not enough dopamine in an area called the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of at the front and side of the brain. And their dopamine seems really important for short-term memory. Hmm. And short-term memory, it sounds like very basic. You know, it's like, you know, it, it's so basic that we sometimes don't really realize that we're using it. You know, short-term memory is the memory over a few seconds. Hmm. Um, so for example, the classic example is you don't really need to do it that much anymore because we all got mobile phones. But if somebody told you a phone number and you had to go over to the phone and dial it in, this kind of memory of a few seconds, uh, it seems trivial, but it's actually really important. It's important even for remembering what you're saying. What was I saying at the start of this sentence and why am I saying it, you know? It's also important. Have you ever had that sensation of maybe going into a room and forgetting why you gone in there oh yeah right well and you're and you're reminding me i saw i read something about uh london taxi drivers are required to really know their geography right cold and they found that like when they look into the brain the development they're like bodybuilders yeah. they're like mr universes in terms of how the brain is developed from this skill that now nobody is learning any longer right 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 we're all tethered to gps and exactly so let's let's get onto that in a sec sure sure and, please and the thing about the short-term memory is like if that's actually disrupted say you don't have enough dopamine in the prefrontal cortex yeah and and you're not really able to hold on to things for a few seconds imagine how disruptive that would be you know in terms of cost often having this feeling of you know, forgetting why you're going to a room, forgetting what you were talking about. You can really see how that could lead to disordered speech um, yeah. and, and potentially other symptoms that these kind of patients with schizophrenia, psychosis may suffer from. Right. And actually, uh, so I got really interested in it then and I got my opportunity to do my PhD in the psychosis studies department at the Institute of Psychiatry oh. in, in, uh, in South East London, in King's College, London. And they were really at the forefront of 
looking into the effects of dopamine in patients with schizophrenia and other populations. A guy called Oliver Howes there, um, and, and also Kieran Azardi, who I did my PhD with, who mm. was particularly interested in the development of, of people who were born too young and have other risk factors for right. maybe mental illness or, or cognitive impairment. So um, I was like, okay, this seems cool. I want to learn more about dopamine. Is it affected in these people? Um, they'd done a big epidemiological study in about 1.2 million people in Scandinavia, and they found that um, that people who are born very prematurely, although most of them, a lot of them are absolutely fine, but unfortunately they do have an increased risk for certain mental psychiatric disorders, mm. right? and one of them is schizophrenia. and. Uh, we also know that people with schizophrenia have an increase, are more likely to have had problems at birth. Hmm. Um, so we wanted to look whether these people who were born very early, and some of them had this very early brain damage, whether they had damage to the dopamine system, and if this may have had effect on uh, their mental health outcome. Right. So this was studied like started like 30 years ago, and we looked at them when they were about 30 years old. Um, hmm. So really looking at the long term effects of this. So there's Dozens and dozens of people have, have worked with these people over their life, entire lifetime. And I came in when they were about 30 years old. Wow. And it was a real privilege to work with them. They're really amazing people. We met probably about 300 of them in for like two days of testing, loads of scans and psychiatric testing, cognitive testing. Amazing people, just regular Londoners. And, you know, a lot of them are fine. And, uh, and unfortunately, some of them have had this damage and some of them have physical deficits. Some of them have some psychiatric problems and so on. Um, and we found that actually uh, these people had reduced dopamine in, in the striatum in mm. the same part where people with schizophrenia on average have more dopamine. So this kind of puzzled us. And we were like, this is kind of the opposite of what I was thinking uh, might happen. Um, but it's kind of like we talked about before, you know, in biology, sometimes too much or too little of a thing isn't optimal. Often you want to be in that nice little mid-range. Mm. Um, and we actually found that the less dopamine they had in this area called the striatum, the more they, they had certain psychiatric symptoms, um, like uh, negative symptoms, we call them, things that, you know, related maybe to depression uh, and also some mild cognitive symptoms. So mm. maybe... Um, short-term memory and, and other things um, but so then from then on I was uh, really interested in how the system worked you know mm. and I was like okay I want to dig in a little bit deeper to the details and I want to start to think about can we can I I'm not a clinician like I said but can I add some value to what the clinicians are doing, maybe try to understand the system a bit better and maybe make some predictions that if we have fantastic clinical collaborators, they can go out and try try things out and see if anything could be of help to the patients, you know. It's so fascinating like the, to work on the front lines of this in something that could just change the lives of, of just humanity. Like you're you're fiddling with something that's so fundamental to just how we've been designed in in uh i mean just just spending a few days kind of diving into this like my father has always loved neurology he's always hated right. hated that he went to law school instead of studying this and <laughs> I, so i was just trying to think like how to make 
use of you for people that are always throwing around terms about this kind of stuff, about what, about depression, about what motivates us. Uh, yeah. um, uh, even the, Pierre asked me a question that I, I want to get to because he spent some time with Ian mm. Robertson also. Okay. So I said, what would your question be for Sean? What would you want me to ask him? <laughs> And uh, so initially he just said, this is kismet, because we were just talking about this. And he asked, is the brain and its user happier to ping established familiar pathways or to experience new ones? And to what extent do our responses to new experiences depend on existing connections? That is, are we basically expanding reward and fear mechanisms established in early childhood? Yeah, so that's it. Serious question. Um, <laughs> so I think that the answer to the, I guess the first question mm-hmm. was: Do we does our brain like everything to be perfectly ordered or perfectly disordered, like chaotic? Mm. And I mean, what our brain likes is a bit vague. But I think generally the way we understand this is it's got to be a bit of both, right? The way we understand how the dopamine system helps us learn is that it's come to learn some prediction of how things are going to be. And then if it comes across something that's good, better than expected, then the dopamine neurons will fire. Mm. And that will help us uh, adapt our connections and make the prediction a little bit more accurate the next time. Now, if you're not able to make an accurate prediction, your system's not really going to work very well because it's not really going to know when to update and, and what to learn and what to throw away. The whole point, well, some people believe strongly that a big job of the brain maybe even the main job of the brain is to predict what is going to happen and to predict that well and to kind of minimize the amount of surprises. Now, Mm. we use these surprises, good and bad, um, in theory, to update our predictions, to make our predictions better for the next time. So on the other hand, if you're uh, locking yourself in a room and there's nothing surprising happening, you're not going to be learning at all either so in order i'm going to kind of rephrase Mm -hmm. his question a little bit and hopefully this is acceptable to you you know like what uh, type of environment is optimal for learning in the brain and it's going to be something that has predictable parts and something that is not entirely predictable nor entirely chaotic and i think that's how we learn and the dopamine system is definitely involved in that interesting yeah i mean one thing i want to get to for sure is this terror that people seem to have with uncertainty in life and yet dopamine is about this delayed response that seems predicated to some degree on um on maybe walking into a casino and you know your (laughs) odds are a gazillion to one but it could be you and and i mean at every strata of society you know like it's fascinating to me people cashing welfare checks to buy lottery tickets well, yeah. Middle class going to Vegas and then the wealthy with Wall Street, like we're all just so profoundly manipulated. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you're, you've been a big boxing fan yeah. most of your life. So I'm, I really want to delve into a lot of questions that I think boxing fans raise up in a kind of glib way and see if we can get an expert to kind of weigh in on a few of this. Right. Um, so I'm intrigued that somebody that appreciates the brain with such acuteness <laughs> Um, yeah. can be a fan of a sport where the objective is to bash this beautiful instrument that we have. You know, it's... it's uh, Yeah, there's definitely... 
some sort of contrast there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say. Um, I'm not gonna lie. So I I have like boxing for a long time. I guess my first memories are probably Steve Collins and Chris Sh- Eubank. Sure. I was pretty young back then, or or maybe Tyson and Holyfield. But around that kind of era. But I kind of got really into it when I was doing my PhD actually. Hmm. So studying the brain, and I was I was living in Brixton, in South London. And uh, I went in and I went to a gym there called Miguel's, just by chance. It was kind of the one in the area, and I just loved it. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and that was it. And I was in the middle of my PhD. It's it's kind of fairly stressful, sure. and I found it was just amazing for getting away from the stress. Um, but then as I started to get into it more and more, you know. And you're sparring. I mean, you're yeah, you're not just training. You're, yeah. You're, so I started just training. Eventually got into the sparring. And uh, I was sparring quite a lot. I mean, I've, I'm still training these days. Yeah. And every now and again, I do kind of like stop and kind of go, I've been taking a few shots to the head and yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out what's, what the likely effects on my brain are going to be. Yeah. Uh, but I do kind of want to talk about that if you're interested and, and think about how boxing affects the brain. Um, not just the stories that a lot of us are familiar with in terms of the boxers who've had long careers. And it can have really traumatic effects and lead to well, that's what, the cliche. What we're calling a chronic traumatic encephalopathy. It yeah. used to be called punch drunk or pugilistic dementia. Do you view those as the same thing? Like I, I want to be clear on that distinction. Well, maybe ask Ian Robertson. He's he's more uh, probably uh, expert there. But it's certainly been a continuum of diagnoses back from the early days in when people were starting to notice this. Uh, in the 20s and 30s and I think our understanding as a field has been uh, uh, updating as more and more research has been done on these people it used to be anecdotal individual studies here and there now there's more and more research a lot of it in American footballers but certainly I think uh, a lot of it's going to be very similar to what we see in boxes and uh, now I think it's basically the Traumatic encephalopathy is the accepted term. It it, um, it really hurts my feelings that you pronounce that so easily because I had the syllables of the word. <laughs> right, let's call it CTE. <laughs> no, yeah, no, no. yeah, yeah. Encephalopathy. Right. Well, I was practicing, and it's just he just rolls it out. But I want to talk to you yeah. not just about that, right? Because no, of course. We know, well, okay, let, I think it's important to talk about that, right? Because it's not, it's a serious thing. Right, and it yeah. can ruin people's lives. You know what I mean. But there's also a lot of positive effects that boxing can have on the brain. That's and absolutely, we, and we don't yeah. always think about them. Yeah. Right. So, and I think it's. I don't think you can really get a, anything approaching a full understanding of how boxing can affect the brain without uh, thinking about the social aspect to it. Right. How does it affect people's lives? How does it affect how they interact with their society? How does it affect uh, their behavior? Right, and it's also a fantastic exercise, and then eventually, some percentage of people will spar, some percentage of people will become amateur boxers, and some percentage of people will be pros. Mm-hmm. And of those pros, you know, a few of them will go on to have long careers. Right. So, I was trying to get an understanding of the statistics of the amount of people that are involved in boxing training in some way. Right, and I could, it was difficult to get a good stat, but I read that. 14% of millennials have had done some sort of boxing training. Now, this is probably huh. that, like, box fit, you know, like the classes that, you know, they never get in a ring. Another statistic I saw online, and I wasn't able to verify, said that something like 6 million people in the U.S. were involved in some sort of 
kickboxing and I'm not sure if they include in kickboxing training. That seems maybe a little high to me, but anyway, it's a very significant number of people that are involved in this sport in some sort of a way. Yeah. Now, um, of them, you know, there's only about, I think, a few hundred gyms in the country that are actual proper boxing gyms where people are sparring. Yeah. Not everybody in those gyms is sparring, right? In 1980, there were about 25,000 amateur boxers in the US. Yeah. Um, and I had a look on BoxRec, and there were about 2,600 Americans fought last year in the pro ranks that, that's on BoxRec, right? Yeah. So you've gone down from about six and millions of people in the community who are in some way involved in boxing down to about two and a half thousand people who are in the professional game. And a lot of them have only had one fight and that'll be it. Right. Right. So when we're thinking about how boxing affects the brain and how it affects society, we don't always need to concentrate on the boxers with long careers, although they're very important because they can be most severely affected in the negative ways. Right. Let's also maybe think about how it's affecting the people who are just training just to get fitness. How does it also affect people who take a bit more seriously? But how does that affect their choices in other parts of life? There's studies, um, not particularly on boxing, but on young athletes. Uh, there's a study of young athletes in France, and this shows that young athletes in general are less likely to take drugs. They're less likely to, to drink. Um, and uh, although there are exceptions, it seems, particularly in team sports, yeah. like rugby, uh, soccer, in Ireland, Gaelic football, I think potentially here college sports, I think are associated with more drinking. But um, in, certainly in my experience, in the boxing clubs that I've been, there hasn't been a drinking culture, right? So I think that a lot of the, there's a lot of positive effects. Doesn't about, mix well to train on a hangover. Right. So I think that there can be a positive effect on behavior there. Sure. There's also some people trying interventions uh, with previous violent offenders, particularly in immigrant communities in, in Denmark, and I think in other places as well, where they try to get these usually young guys into the boxing club. And, you know, it's still like um, a kind of, you know, masculine environment and get them in there and try to let out some of their anger and deal with their stress in that way and try to reduce their temptation to get back into the street life. Sure. As it is. And, you know, I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, uh, probably from people you know, from people I know, that this may work. And I'm hoping that there's going to be much more scientific study of uh, the potential effects of boxing in terms of promoting positive behavior and reducing violence and, and uh, kind of criminal activity on the street. But I think there's still a lot, a lot more work to be done. But certainly, I think for some people, it's undoubtedly beneficial in that in that uh, aspect. Well, I think, and I think it also offers a surrogate family. Right. You know, which most of the people drawn to boxing, that's like the reason they're there is, is there's, there's family yeah. issues. There's a broken home. Wow, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, all of these great boxers, um, almost to a man, are emerging from similarly traumatic right. environments. Right. Like the home, around the home, the neighborhood. Yeah. And once these communities rise up out of that kind of uh, milieu, yeah. they stop participating in boxing. There were great, the great Irish boxers, there were Jewish boxers, and, right. and once the socioeconomic status changes, yeah. um, you don't see as many of them, Yeah. right? Yeah. This is another thing that we kind of haven't explicitly talked about. Yeah. Well, a lot of people are motivated to get into boxing, I believe, because maybe they're getting bullied. 
Right. Or maybe they don't feel safe walking down the street. And it can it can do good things for self esteem. Massive. Um, and and uh, and reducing stress. And a lot of that is really important for your mental health. Self confidence. Well. Self confidence. Yeah. So so. So we've covered a lot of the positive stuff. And isn't it isn't it true? Like if if dopamine is about this anticipation, or it, to some degree, if dopamine is release elevated levels of dopamine is about this reward that you're working towards. Yeah. Boxing is one of the best incremental uh, bridges toward where you want to get. All over it, like with becoming better. I notice it working one on one with boxing clients who say right. they they pick up a skipping rope. They're so clueless, they and they're so embarrassed to look clueless in oh, front of somebody. The worst, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I have to say, I say to each one of them, they go, "Oh, it must be so horrible for you to watch another. You've had a thousand clients, and we all look awful." I said, "This is the greatest pleasure of me working with you. Is I have learned how to expedite this, and if right. you follow these instructions." In two weeks, you'll have no idea how you got to where you're going to get in terms right. of proficiency. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Amazing. And if you don't have the person working with you, the mirror, yeah. which you need, which is another interesting feature of boxing, you can't do it alone. Yeah. You can't do it in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah. You need to have the person yeah, there watching. Yeah, the idea, like, you know, learning through feedback can definitely be much more effective. Because you know. everything the body wants to do mm. is wrong. <laughs> Boxing, everything is opposites. Everything that feels like the natural way to throw a punch, to get away from a punch, to move your feet, all of what feels easiest is wrong. So it's totally counterintuitive, and then you have to make the counterintuitive almost subconscious, instinctual. Yeah, so it's actually, in terms of how dopamine works in in boxing, I mean, it probably works in a whole lot of different ways, right? But let's just think about the idea of a fight. And the goal is to to win the fight, maybe to knock the other guy out, right? And that's traditionally how we've thought about problems. And there's a whole field of artificial intelligence now, which is used in in developing this theory of how to do really complex tasks. And and one of the ways people think that that people and now artificial intelligence uh, uh, machines do this is they can break it down into little sub-problems. And you could definitely see that happen in boxing. Right, so instead of there just being one big dopamine release at the end of the fight when you knock the or you know when you knock the other guy out or your hand gets raised, there's probably little sub rewards like when you sure. land a punch, maybe when you when you avoid uh, a punch, avoid sure. a punch, uh, if you think you won a round, you know what I mean, and so all of that is is going to be probably little rewards that could well be through the dopamine system. Isn't that interesting? And yeah. also even I mean there's a lot of learning. This is one of the things that I love about boxing, and I don't think it's taught enough in a, lot, in a lot of gyms is about strategy and it's a really cognitive game if you're sparring if you're fighting right you know it's is this whole sub-branch of behavior economics or psychology that we call right. game theory right? right so if i'm in the ring with you or somebody else you know i'm thinking okay i'm gonna how is brain gonna react to this punch right. how am i gonna take advantage of that and you're thinking the same and yeah. it's very can be this very high level cognitive game oh yeah and there's there's some research mostly in rodents um i believe to to suggest that actually when you combine exercise with cognitive tasks things that are kind of also really taxing the brain that the benefits can can uh, there could be even more benefits in terms of growth factors and, and other positive benefits in the brain so mm-hmm. um despite so boxing might have 
a lot of advantages or the interesting stuff that's going on in the brain just because, purely because it's exercise might also have additional benefits because the whole time you have this cognitive game with your opponent and you're learning and you're trying to learn how they're going to react and and so on and then of course there's this you know this negative side because you know you're not going to avoid all the punches <laughs> right stress fear <laughs> yeah 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 right so we've covered a bunch of the positive stuff yeah um what i also want to look at is the questions I hear over and over and over again, um, which I don't really hear anybody addressing beyond sort of the Twitter, just knee-jerk, knee glib responses from some people that I don't have any sense that they have a background of knowledge in it, right. is if the brain is not finished developing in a lot of meaningful ways until your mid-20s, yeah. well, if you're getting hit in the head at 10, 12, I mean, if you need to be that young to get involved to become a champion. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. So for kids, yeah. teenagers, we're hearing it in football, do you really want to get hit with sub-concussions, micro-concussions, yeah. let alone the big... I, I, I boxed for years, but the, the, the hits I remember traumatizing my brain were from playing running back right. as a 12-year-old. I only played two years. So, I mean... That is true, and I think definitely uh, damage to the brain when you are developing, it, it affects your brain in a different way, and your yeah. brain's gonna react to it in a different way. And in some ways, um, in some ways, it, it sometimes will not be as bad because your brain is uh, better able to adjust its connections, it has mm. more plastic potential. But it, you know, it can also alter potentially the course of development, and it can have these unintended consequences. And none of us want to put kids, teenagers, uh, down a dangerous route if we don't have to. Right. So I played soccer when I was, you know, the whole time growing up until I got into boxing, and uh, there now the serious talk about banning heading the ball in soccer uh, until you're 12 years old, and huh. and I actually think that's kind of. I would be behind that. I would support that, I think, because uh, there's been cases coming out now of, of CTE in, in soccer. And, you know, Hitting a ball I, is no joke. I used to, so I mean, like me and a lot of other people, you know, that was my position. I like, kind of right. pride on being able to get up and head the ball, the hard, long balls or whatever. And you could imagine your brain's just shaking around in there when you got hit with a long ball, you know. Right. Um, and, and I'm not saying that's any better or worse than... American football or boxing, it might not be as bad, but it's still seriously causing some... Well, boxing, you're trying to get away from it. Soccer, yeah. you're trying to get hit it. Right. Football, you're no, trying to go into the impact. Point. And you're, 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 you're oftentimes when the ball's coming towards you, you're meeting it with velocity. That as much as you can. Own. Yeah. So so in that way, yeah, it's definitely dodgy. But, I mean, there's an argument in soccer that you don't have to completely change, ruin the game a lot of people at that right. age think that you should be developing your skills so they're going to play with a smaller ball like they do in brazil and they do in other countries mm. they play five aside and they develop their skills until they're 12 and then they'll start introducing heading the ball at a later age now like right. you said the prefrontal cortex which is right behind the bit where you used to head the ball is still developing in well into your 20s so i think it's still to be seen how effective that will be now in terms of boxing i mean look if we could just talk about uh, the, the the social benefits, potential benefits, the the exercise, uh, maybe even the body sparring, then I would say box. Everybody should be boxing, or you know, it's, right. it's a great thing. Unfortunately, 
you have to it, getting hit in the head is really at the core of it right and you can't really get away from it so i don't really know if anybody would seriously accept like body sparring until you're 16 or something in boxing um but yeah so i think it's not likely to be a good thing of course getting hit in the head when especially when you're in development um on the other hand what's the evidence that um these young people who spar go on to have uh, different types of brain injury when when they grow up um now i want to just preface this and say that i'm not suggesting that kids should be going in and sparring a lot when they're in their teenagers early 20s yeah right but it is true that a lot of the evidence for cte in boxing uh was originally from studies from people who were fighting in between 1930-1950 right and these were professional fighters who were having like 300 fights yeah right and about 17% of them had uh, suffered from CT so about 1 in 6 okay and it's a terrible horrible condition Um, there's some uh, studies from uh, ringside physicians I believe Paul McCrory in Australia um, who suggest that the way boxing is changing, we have less rounds these days, shorter careers, that they suggest that um, we'll hopefully see less incidents of CTE. And there's certainly been a lot less recorded incidents in amateur boxers than in professional boxers. Well, and so what I wanted to flip a little bit is, is we've been telling the stories of boxers, but I want to understand the dopamine level of the audience watching violence because why I brought up the Aaron Hernandez thing mm, is one of the one of the people talking about do we want this sport to be safer because nobody is cheering for safety we're cheering for <clears throat> violence yeah. and we're cheering for you know maximizing violence it's yeah so in in the case of of boxing nobody is people want to see the risk of death yeah it's i mean it's it's fascinating and i've thought about this right as a you know a neuroscientist and i love boxing and how can i what's the way to make boxing safe right like really i mean professional boxing the one that we all love watching what's the way and honestly i don't know the answer i think there's some fantastic people in the field some of them are the ringside doctors and doing research and they're trying to minimize the risk shorter careers stopping people you know earlier um uh, shorter rounds uh, or sorry less rounds and so on and doing research in terms of the protection but it's never going to completely eliminate the risk and the question is like where do we go from that uh, i mean <laughs> you're 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 much more knowledgeable about boxing than i am i mean i don't think people would tune in to body sparring no, you know, well, because, because you're presupposing that we want it to be safe. I'm yeah. saying it doesn't exist. Yeah. It is there be precisely because it's violent and offers yeah. this risk. And and moreover, I mean, this this kind of dovetails with uh, Robert Sapolsky, the neuroendocrinologist, right. who had this thing where he said, and I think this dovetails with what you're talking about, where he had a passage that really caught my attention from a TED Talk that he gave, right. where he said, he began it with, that he's always fantasized about killing Hitler in really grotesque detail. It's like a recurring thing for him. And so he said, I have a a fantasy about killing Hitler, the most evil soul in history, but there's an immediate problem. And it's that he doesn't believe in souls and he doesn't believe in evil. 
and he's wanted to see some people killed since he was a kid. Awful people out in the culture, he wanted them dead. And a lot of us don't admit to that, but I think right. our nervous system, even getting stuck in traffic if somebody cuts us <laughs> off, we want them dead. But he says, but I also am against the death penalty. And right. I love violent, but I also love violent movies. And I'm also for strict gun control. Yeah. Um, but I love playing laser tag where I'm in a corner shooting people. Yeah. So his point is that we're all in a perpetually confused state about our relationship to very primal things. And he said, if you look at this, all of humanity has a very confused relationship with violence. Yeah. We're miserably, we're a miserably violent species. Yeah. These are his words. Um, where, whereby we don't hate violence, we hate the wrong kind of violence. Yeah. Um, when we have the right kind of violence, we cheer it on, we hand out medals, we build statues of people mm. who are great killers or orderers of killers, um, we vote for it, we mate with the champions of it, mm. um, we love the right kind. Mm. And so I find that really interesting because I feel just as confused about it. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these are all questions that are much bigger than boxing, right? They're societal things. and. You know, it wasn't that long ago that they were pu public executions, you know, right. pu public lynchings. Uh, Is it appealing to the same things, um, though? Is That's what I'm kind of wondering. Like in the brain, like responding to the risk of death between two half-naked guys, is that kind of what we're thrilled by, excited by, vicariously on some level? It's an interesting question. Um, I, I can't, okay. Unless you really hate the person, I'm just going to think about the, the kind of public execution example now. Like, unless you really hate the person, I can't see a way of enjoying that. Unless you somehow dehumanize them and pretend it's not like somebody that could be like you or somebody that you know, you know, it just seems inconscionable. In terms of how you enjoy boxing fights, I don't necessarily think it has to be something as primal as that. Although it could well. Um, feed into it mm. but I think in boxing potentially like other sports right you usually pick a fighter you often would pick a fighter that you like yeah and you want to to win right and you you know you probably want to see you know your big payoff will be if he or she uh, knocks the other person out wins the fight in a spectacular sure. style um, and like just the same way we talked about how boxing is like a prediction game theory problem, observing boxing can be too, you know, if you're like, oh, you know, like, you're like, you know, like Katie Taylor's is going to beat this girl, you know, knock her out first round, you know what I mean? You were like, okay, sure. you know, if, if Katie gets cracked across the jaw, you're like, oh, that's, that's, I didn't expect that. That's bad. It's going to be like potentially a drop in my right. dopamine firing or if she knocks her out with a punch you didn't see coming. Sure. You know, that's kind of the goal that you'd kind of imagine. Maybe maybe you get a little hit of dopamine then. So I think that, you know, people can see it in a sport way and they want their person to win. And it doesn't uh, always have to be about the pure primal thing. Although I think what you're saying, yeah, it definitely, I mean, it makes sense that there's kind of a lineage somehow from the Coliseum to... I'm just trying to trace it to because you, you look at the other sports, their games, yeah. you know, their proxies. Like, yeah, football, there's big-time violence, but it's not it's not so basic in terms of 
um, you know, you've got the, the, you know, sudden death in football is still just a score, right? Like, I mean, it's still about scoring, yeah. scoring, kicking yeah. a field goal or a touchdown or whatever. Yeah. In boxing, the idea that you win by not, like, re- removing somebody from their consciousness. Yeah. The first time I came across you, your stuff was on this amazing article you wrote on bullfighting. Mm-hmm. And there must have been some of these emotions in that as well, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's life and death every second. So what's the what's the attraction? There's this whole cultural thing built into that as well over there, right? Well, so the, attr- the, 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 the attraction, which I didn't identify at first, I mean, you have to reverse engineer your emotional response, yeah. is that uh, I, I think I described it as watching somebody play Russian roulette in their own cemetery, is I'm watching suicide, and suicide's something I've been drawn to since I was a little kid. Wow. And so, and and by the way, it's not just me. There's triple the suicide rate in this country compared to murder. So we love murder as entertainment, but what we're really, really good at is is suicide in this country, and it's a wildly underreported thing. Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of existential angst, um, a a matador, and I think this is also I'm drawn to in artists and stuff as well. A matador, the better he is, the more danger he has to accept. Mm. He's not safer. Mm. Mayweather's safer the better he is. A yeah. matador needs to. The first time I was outside a bull ring in Madrid, and and I was asking the aficionados, like I see these expensive names, the names next to it, a, a very expensive price. What's yeah. the difference? What what makes this guy more expensive? He's just killing a fucking animal yeah. in a ritualized torture. Yeah. Why is he better than the other one? Yeah. Does he stab it better? Is, you know, is he cutting off their head? No, 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 no. It's and they went through the list, and as they went through the list, they held out their hands like like uh, goalposts, and the goalposts got narrower and narrower as they got more expensive. And I said, I don't know your this their dick size. Like what are we talking <laughs> about? And they went, No, that's how close the horn comes to his heart every time the bull passes. And then they left out a name, and I went, Well, okay, Jose Tomas. You haven't said this twenty year old guy. This yeah. is nineteen ninety eight. Um, or around there. Yeah, I think he was 2021. 20, Still young before he became like, mm. some people say the greatest bullfighter ever. That was my first one was to watch him. Wow. As, as I said, what about Jose Tomas? You haven't said, what's the measurement for him? How close is the horn coming? And they said, none of us in Spain have seen it because we all cover our eyes. Oh, wow. And I, I thought, <laughs> I don't know how to deal with this because I like sports. I like competition. You're not talking about a sport here. And I don't know how to deal with somebody that would accept this. Yeah. And I don't understand a country where your national animal is something that you sacrifice. Yeah. The fuck is wrong with you people? <laughs> I was just so in love with it and at the same time traumatized by it. Yeah. And it's exactly the way. I'm a huge animal lover. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm brought to tears far more by animal things than people things. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's a tragedy so anytime it's like, it's not a competitive contest, not meant to be a competitive contest. You don't go to Romeo and Juliet and complain because everybody's dead. You go there for it. Mm-hmm. There's a point to that. Mm-hmm. You may disagree with it. Mm-hmm. You may object to it. Mm-hmm. But when it's done at an extraordinary level, you can never go back to a lot of stuff that you really cared about because it just, it's just, it's, there's, there's no stakes. It's interesting. There's, like, they have these, like... Um like whole families of famous bullfighters and uh, 
and artists and and stuff over there. There's this the Dominguins. Oh yeah, you that? yeah, sure. So you know Hemingway was covering them. Like that was like the last big article he did really? was covering the Dominguins versus the um, the Ordonez. Oh, really? There's the Amano Amano that toured around the whole country. Amazing. So I mean, I guess some of that family they they try to express themselves in different ways and. Actually, one of the daughters ended up studying mime in Paris with my parents. Oh wow! And that was their that was their way out, and I it just didn't mean anything to me. And then I ended up moving to Spain, and everybody was like, "Yeah, you know, they knew her." It's oh like wow! Their version of like you know, you know, Prince Harry or something. <laughs> oh, they're big. They're big. Um, in the yeah. south, especially. I mean, Seville. I mean, a lot of some of those bullfighters dying were like Kennedy getting shot here. Wow. So I guess we started on mime and <laughs> finished on mime. We... That was great. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, guys. That was great. fun. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcon Swaby, Dolgan Media. Myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler, and our audio editor is Anda Salaji. Thanks for listening. <laughs>